Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. Once upon a time in the 50s, not in the 1950s, I mean the real 50s, there was a Greek man living in Southwest Asia, now known as Turkey. Epiphas was his name, and on the best day of his life, he met the Apostle Paul and Timothy in Ephesus. The pair shared the gospel with him, how the Son of God willingly died on the cross for our sins, rose again, and now sits at the right hand of the Father. He offers salvation and reconciliation to all who would believe in him and be baptized. Epiphas repented, converted, and was baptized. Full of zeal, he decided to plant a church in Colossae, a city famous for its wool. It was a thriving city that had a long history as a major thoroughfare for diverse cultures and peoples. The good news was well received, and a vibrant church grew and flourished in Colossae. But gradually, oh, so gradually, the faithful started to get mixed up. They started to get confused. There were people from many cultures living and traveling through Colossae. Converts brought their own philosophies, their faith systems, their ideas and traditions with them into the church. Now, obviously, the other gods and idols and things like that were left at the door, but there were more subtle forces influencing the body. Early Christian Gnostics were exploring the concept that the material world is evil and must be transcended, but only by a select enlightened few. Mystical Jews were teaching that rigorous self-denial, fasting, and other ascetic practices would bring them to holiness. Persians shared their fascinations with angels and demons, so new Christians were buying talismans to ward off evil spirits. And the rational left-brain types espoused various Greek philosophies, trying to make sense of the cosmos through the power of observation and reason. The sophists among them, like our talking heads on cable news today, rejected the idea of objective truth and just enjoyed arguing for the sake of intellectual stimulation. All these worldviews and practices were popular. Each made a certain kind of sense. Each proponent could back up their claims with little bits of evidence or persuasive arguments. Aspects of these teachings made people feel more powerful in the face of an unknown and hostile universe. They were all interesting, and they all converged on the church in Colossae at the same time. From a Christian point of view, these are all heresies, and heresies can be church killers. Often, I suspect, they found their way in through converts who wanted to accept Jesus as Lord, but stay relevant in their culture. Or maybe they wanted to remake the church, in their own image, calling their own preferences, values, and priorities God's will. I think Epiphus sent a letter to the Apostle Paul, who had never visited Colossae and never did, but was well known in the region. Dear Paul, he wrote, you're the brainy one in the new movement that we're calling the way. You're inventing theology every day. 
sometimes without even resorting to punctuation. What are we supposed to do about all these converging religions and philosophies in our church? It's too much for me, and I'm worried that people are going to go astray or water down our faith until it loses what's most important. What's your take on this? Sincerely, Epiphas the Weaver. Well, Paul's epistle to the Colossians is a response to the false teachings and heresies worming their way into the Christian church in Colossae. Now, before I get into today's, today's passage, I would like to suggest to you, and you probably figured it out already, we live in a similar multicultural society with lots of competing ideas and practices even within the church. There's an ongoing tension between how much the body of Christ should assimilate into a culture in order to att attract potential believers and be relevant in the world, and how much the church is meant to be countercultural, transforming society through its radical witness. So whatever Paul says in Colossians might also be helpful as we discern and navigate how to respond to heresies within our own hearts and minds and recognize how they can weaken and damage the body of Christ. Because heresies are dangerous. We sheep can easily be led astray by misguided, well-meaning pastors, by actual predators, faulty logic, the pressure of our noisy and demanding culture, social media, and even demonic influences. Paul addresses all of those in his letter. In my adult Christian life, which dates back to the 1970s, I've been tempted by a bunch of heresies. Here are the top three. The prosperity gospel. You've probably most likely encountered this with TV preachers. They claim health and wealth are always the will of God for us and that faith, positive affirmations, and donations to religious causes will bring us a fortune. Basically, it's a pyramid scheme. Those who promote it do not have other people's best interests at heart. They have their own interests at heart. Coffee and Crucifix blogger Renee Albert says, People who subscribe to such a mentality generally attribute the value of life based on net worth or have been wounded in life and look towards prosperity as a way of coping with past trauma or internal pain. Number two, liberation theology. Liberation theology is primarily focused on social concern for the poor and the political liberation of oppressed peoples. It's responsible for coining the lie that Jesus had a preferential option for the poor. It was most popular in Latin America during the Reagan years, especially with the Jesuits. And it was also especially popular in the seminary I attended. Ray Hundel of the Mountain Retreat says, liberation theology's greatest threat to Christianity is its tendency to allow the gospel to be swallowed up by Marxism. The New Testament is reduced to a collection of useful illustrations of Marxist truths. Adherents ignore man's spiritual needs and concentrate on bettering mankind's physical conditions. And the third, Christian patriots. This is when we conflate faith and patriotism or other human institutions. These Christians make passionate but generic references to God. They call for fervent prayer and pleas for morality 
But the alleged number one devotion to God is usually tied to number one devotion to the well-being of the nation instead of the kingdom of heaven and the souls that might be saved. And this worldview can be really sneaky. To what extent should a church acknowledge Independence Day or Mother's Day? I heard of a priest who had a specially made blue and orange stole to wear when he presided on Bronco Sundays, and the congregation loved it. it it's easy to get into our hearts and minds. Well, what's wrong with that? Well, what's wrong? Well, the prophet Ezekiel, <laughs> let's just go to the prophet, shall we? Likened a once great nation to a cedar whose branches overshadowed the forests. It grew taller than every other tree. No cedar in God's garden overshadowed it, and no fir can compare with its boughs. Not a tree in God's garden could rival its beauty. But the evidence of the eminence of the giant cedar tempted it to forget that it was the waters beneath it that made it great. It's from Ezekiel 31. Okay, not, this isn't in my sermon, but I thought of it, and so I'm going to add it. Um, how does God correct? How do we correct this kind of stuff? You know, do we burn people at the stake? Well, that's not in fashion anymore. I think what happens is, and probably just as well, uh, it's not a good carbon footprint. But if we're prayerfully reading the Bible, and if we are listening and getting to know Jesus in a personal way, the Holy Spirit will send up a little red flag or ring a little alarm in us and say, hmm, that... Sounds good, but there's something wrong. Find out what's going on here. Or it'll say, oh, that's of God. Or, oh, I, I, I just don't know about that. And then you can seek guidance and you can try to figure it out for yourself. Now, if a person really does get infected with a heresy of something like that, it's the pastor's job to help bring them back to the way, the truth, and the life, to reorient their priorities and center on that. If the pastor gets infected, and this happens, it's the bishop's job. The bishop, one of the bishop's primary roles is defender of the faith, to make sure that the priests and the congregations are biblically orthodox in their theology and in their practices. That's the, priest, the, the bishop's job. In the Anglican church, the bishops are hesitant to do that because they don't want to hurt anybody else's feelings, and they don't want to get sued. Uh, but uh, that is the official role of the bishops. Now, it's pretty obvious that the church today is dealing with challenges much like what the church in Colossae faced. Just this week, Pope Francis cautioned a coalition of German bishops not to move forward with their progressive agenda, which includes radical positions on homosexuality, marriage, female priests, and how the church is governed. He said it could cause a schism, a breaking of the unity of the church. Now, Episcopal Church is way ahead of the Catholics in this. We've already split three times in the last 50 years over minimizing the consequences of sin in a contemporary language prayer book, the ordination of women split the church, and most recently, gay marriage. And that's how the ACNA was created, out of that schism. Also this week, a senior bishop in the Church of England, ignoring the Bible and millennia of Christian teaching, said the church has no official definition of a woman amidst an evolving understanding of gender in the contemporary world. I think we all know where that's going. Now, 
I'm feeling like Epaphus. Sadly, Colossae was destroyed by an earthquake within a couple of years of the writing of Paul's letter to the Colossians. But at least we've got the letter. Hey, Paul, what are we supposed to do? We're stumbling around in a valley of the shadow of death here. It's dark and noisy. Everyone's shouting at once, and there are pitfalls all around. What have you got to say? Here's a paraphrase and an interpretation of what Paul writes to the people of Colossae based on Colossians 2, 6 through 15, and a sentence or two from chapter 1, and a sentence from chapter 3. Don't allow the world to define who you are. You have received Christ, so walk in him. Be rooted and built up in him. Stick to the fundamentals of the faith. Set your mind on the things that are above and be grateful for having a firm, unshakable foundation. Guard yourself against worldly wisdom, lies, and demonic manipulation. Reject anything that doesn't line up to who Christ is and what he taught us. Because Jesus is the physical embodiment of God the Father. He is the head of the church. He is the preeminent ruler over heaven and earth. His is the only true and final authority. And guess what? You are fully within him, and he is within you. In a world full of division and divisiveness, you and Jesus are inseparable. You and Jesus are inseparable. You share in the new covenant established by his blood. You were buried with him in your baptism. The old you's dead. Now, our Lord Jesus gets to decide who you are and what you will become. Your sins are forgiven. Your debt has been paid. And through your faith, you have a new and eternal life in Christ. Perfect love has won you for the Father. So honestly, do you really think the powers and principalities of this dark and broken world, the shrill arguments and shifting demands of insane people can stand up to his glory? All of it, and all of them, the enemies of truth, will pass away. Jesus has triumphed over sin and suffering and death. He has triumphed over the lies of the evil one and everything this fallen world can throw at you. You have received not just salvation, you have received the Savior himself. So walk in him with your head held high. Walk in his light, in his confidence, and in his peace. I'd like to close with a blessing I learned while I was away gallivanting into Longmont and three and a half weeks in Ireland. I learned this in Longmont. As you go out from this place, always remember the good news. That God was in Christ Jesus reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them. God loves you. God has forgiven you. God is not angry with you. God will never leave nor forsake you. And the, God, the glory of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit bless you and keep you always. Amen.
Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.